There are so many modalities out there right now. Chemotherapy, radiation therapy, IO, targeted therapy, you know, cell therapy, and of course, antibodies, including bispecifics, uh, and so on. I, I think we tend to get into this us versus them mentality when, you know, when we're in a biotech or pharma. I think it's important to still stay focused on the fundamental problem that we're all trying to solve collectively, which is to combat cancer right, and improve patient outcomes. Welcome to the Personalized Medicine Podcast. This is the place where scientists, clinicians and entrepreneurs discuss the progress of this rapidly developing field. I'm your host, Alexander Yahensky. Let's start. Three, two, one, and we are live. Welcome to the next episode of the Personalized Medicine Podcast. Today, we will be talking about cancer, oncolytic viruses, and how investor mindset helps building successful biotech companies. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Arthur Kuan, the CEO of CG Oncology. Arthur is a molecular biologist by training. After completing his bachelor's degree at University of Pennsylvania and master's at John Hopkins, Arthur started his career as a venture investor working at several prominent Shanghai-based funds. In 2016, Arthur became the CEO of CG Oncology and has been leading the company from a promising scientific idea into a viable biotech business. Arthur, thank you so much for accepting my invitation and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So I would like to start with your story. Can you tell us what got you interested in molecular biology and how that passion led you to the place you are at today? Sure. So um, since I was a, a young kid, I've always been fascinated by the life sciences and um, I've always wanted to understand how the world works. So early on, we didn't understand DNA, RNA and proteins. Um, but, you know, as I progressed through my um, scientific training and education through elementary school, through middle school, um, I've always wanted to just probe deeper and deeper into the underpinnings of life. And really that's what led me to uh, the pursuit of studying uh, molecular biology, uh, which is really the building blocks of uh, all life forms. And, you know, it's, um, it's such a powerful tool that it also enables us to create you know, new forms of organisms and uh, we could modify diseases and create uh, just really powerful tools. And basic molecular biology understanding have also led to many scientific breakthroughs uh, in modern science and medicine. So I'm really still a passionate student of molecular biology and we're still uh, really learning a lot every day as we go. Great. And uh, what I also I'm curious about is how that passion for molecular biology led you later to venture capital and then eventually to becoming a CEO of a biotech company. Sure. So uh, when I was at Penn, um, finishing up my uh, third year of studies, uh, there was an opportunity um, to join a VC fund in, in Shanghai at the time. And 
I was always um, interested in in finance and business, uh, even while I was pursuing molecular biology. So the combination of the two uh, landed me a job opportunity to be an analyst at a VC fund out of Shanghai. And I think my scientific training, really, you know, the scientific uh, question and the pursuit of, um, you know, science uh, has enabled me to ask the right questions as an investor uh, early on. So I was also fortunate in that um, I could speak Mandarin uh, growing up. So having that um, combined, it, it really gave me a, a nice opportunity to work at a VC fund uh, out of Asia. And uh, we were investing in companies in the U.S. So speaking two languages was uh, definitely a key advantage. And uh, certainly having some understanding of both business and science uh, was what led me to becoming a VC early on. Perfect. And uh, I really would like our audience to hear your story of becoming the CEO of CG Oncology. So can you tell us a little bit more about how did it happen? Yeah. So essentially, CG Oncology was one of the portfolio companies of Ally Bridge, um, a VC fund that I was with uh, that was based out of Hong Kong. And at the time, um, Amgen had just not long ago purchased a company called BioVex uh, for about a billion dollars. And BioVex was a company that developed TVEC, an oncolytic herpes uh, virus uh, used for melanoma. So that got me really excited about this space um, that one could use an engineered virus to treat cancer and that there is a regulatory pathway to get the product approved. So when CG Oncology um, you know, became a portfolio company of Ally Bridges, I decided to um, also personally invest in the company and decided to join the company. And initially... As a startup company, you know, we were, I wore multiple hats. Um, so I was, you know, involved from clinical operations to um, R&D to business development, finance and accounting. It was a startup at the time. And uh, over the years, um, uh, in 2016, that was when I continued to rise through the ranks and became CEO. So it's really... Um, I, I do owe a lot of credit to Ally Bridge giving me the opportunity to, um, you know, leave my post at the VC uh, to join CG Oncology on a full-time basis. Certainly, there's been um, quite a lot of learning experience along the way. Yeah, it's it's definitely a learning curve, but uh, it's also a testament to to a great job. Let's speak a little bit about what actually CG Oncology is doing. So can you give our audience a brief overview of what are the main problems that you are focusing on with CG Oncology? Sure. Essentially, the problem that we're trying to solve is um, this problem called uh, tumor tolerance to you know, the immune system. So essentially, tumor cells have ways to escape the immune system. And when that happens... You know the immune system can no longer recognize cancer cells. So our strategy is to use a genetically engineered virus, in this case, an adenovirus, that's very safe and uh, commonly seen in nature. And we, well, all we've done is to engineer its promoter by adding a specific uh, human E2F1 promoter in front of the virus uh, promoter. 
So what that does is that it makes the virus highly targeted to just cancer cells that harbor this specific genetic mutation along the retinoblastoma RBE2F1 pathway. So what we're doing here is we're trying to use the virus to select, selectively target cancer cells, lyse them and, from within, and have them infect nearby cancer cells to propagate the whole cycle again. So along the way, this will actually serve the purpose of uncloaking the tumor's defense mechanism with the idea of reigniting the immune system to retarget cancer cells. So we're doing this by using a tightly controlled uh, agent uh, to really help the immune system uh, recognize cancer cells again. And so far we've seen really good results and uh, we love to continue to explore uh, this approach into multiple tumor types. Perfect. Yeah, sounds fantastic. And I know that you are originally focusing on the bladder cancer. So I'm curious, what is your rationale there? Why exactly bladder cancer? And to which other cancer types you can potentially expand your oncolytic virus platform? So the bladder, uh, as an indication, um, was chosen strategically. Bladder cancer, you know, especially the high-grade, high-risk, non-muscle invasive type, you know, which encompasses about 80% of all bladder cancer patients, uh, when they fail frontline therapy, which is BCG, a mycobacteria, uh, you get into this space where we call BCG unresponsive. And the only therapy that's left at that point is cystectomy, which is the complete removal of the bladder. So our, our goal is to administer a virus locally, intravesically into the bladder, expand it, and keep the therapy highly localized such that we won't have any systemic side effects. So this is one of the very few organs that would enable us to deliver the virus in such a, such a mechanism. And, you know, so far, um, as predicted, we have not seen any uh, systemic side effects. Everything is contained locally, right? So, you know, when we're developing any new modalities, uh, safety is always top of our minds. Uh, so bladder cancer... Uh, not only uh, is one that uh, anatomically could provide us with that safety uh, you know, protection, it also is an area of great immediate need because these patients really want to have another chance of preserving their bladders uh, because radical cystectomy, uh, although curative, um, is, does come with high morbidity and mortality rates, usually within for the first 90, especially for uh, older uh, patients. So that was why we first chose bladder. And now that we have a good foothold and understanding of how the virus is behaving in bladder cancer, we would like to expand this into other lines of bladder cancer, first of all, as well as into other tumor types that also harbor the RBE2F1 mutation. Perfect. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, as you said, it's such an important unmet need uh, currently uh, in the clinics. So perhaps you can share like some of the most recent clinical data that, that you've uh, gathered on your lead candidate and uh, how does it perform versus the status quo therapies? Sure, sure. So, so currently, still the gold standard is the complete resection of the bladder, right? So that's the gold standard. Uh, but in terms of medical therapy, um, there was a chemotherapy drug that was approved um, uh, in the 1999 called Valstar, and that is a mitomycin C analog. Uh, so chemotherapy ther does about 19% uh, complete response rate at any time. 
and typically their response rates would occur uh, by three three months uh, after treatment. So Keytruda, uh, Merck's anti-PD-1 immunotherapy product, they got an approval based on a single arm study last year in 2020 um, and achieving about a 41% complete response rate at three months. Uh, so that's, uh, and that, you know, it remains durable uh, with about 19% complete response rates at 12 months. So what we have shown so far in over 100 patients is that we can do about uh, 65% complete response rate at any time. And with a durability of around 28% at 12 months. And the good thing about this uh, versus Keytruda in a way is that we don't have to give, give this agent uh, systemically. We can uh, deliver the virus um, really at the urologist's office and you know, intravesically via a catheter. And you don't have to worry about the systemic side effects that could be seen with um, uh, other you know, immune checkpoint inhibitors. So this has uh, really you know, excited us enough to propel us forward to a phase three trial. So we're currently under a phase three trial, uh, you know, enrolling patients globally in a uh, BCG unresponsive non-muscle invasive bladder cancer study. Um, we are also excited about the combination potential of this uh, with Keytruda. So, you know, as a monotherapy, we think there's a clear distinction and advantage uh, and really offers a new option for physicians um, later on when it's potentially approved. Uh, but also, we see a lot of potential to combine Keytruda or other checkpoint inhibitors with an oncolytic virus. And this has to do with the mechanism of action. Keytruda and all these checkpoint inhibitors are mainly acting on T cells or tumor cells that express PD-L1, which means the prerequisite of those therapies really requires an influx of T cells um, to the tumor target. And we believe the oncolytic virus has the potential of lysing to cancer cells, generating new and novel neoantigens for proper training and priming of T cells that would drive additional T cells and new T cells to the tumor target. So essentially, we think of it as a, a back-end and, and a front-end approach where the oncolytic virus is focusing more on the front-end while the checkpoint inhibitors are focusing on the back-end, lifting the checkpoints uh, when T-cells are being inhibited by tumor cells. Perfect. Yeah, that sounds very promising. And uh, I really like your last point that you made uh, on those combinational therapies, right? When you can combine checkpoint inhibitors with oncolytic viruses. And I think it's a very exciting field. And what I'm curious about is how difficult or how easy is it to establish those partnerships with large pharmaceutical companies, such as Merck, such as Roche, such as BMS, from a perspective of rather small emerging biotech player? Sure. It's, um, it's certainly, I would say, not, not that easy. Um, we so far have established over the years a partnership with Merck and more recently with Bristol Myers and Roche. I think all of the all three relationships um, came about from a research and development uh, angle uh, where we have already shown uh, good preclinical data as well as clinical phase one two data and on the basis of that um, you know it's uh, it's an easier discussion and dialogue to discuss 
the potential combination usage of both. Because from the big pharma's perspective, they are already commercializing their um, anti-PD-1 assets, uh, generating billions of dollars. Their biggest concern really is uh, safety, first and foremost. They do not want your agent to potentially taint or harm uh, their blockbuster drug. So I think it's important to um, really early on identify any kind of synergistic toxicity risk and potential, and also demonstrating your single agent toxicity profile is well-managed and well-contained, ideally well-characterized as well. So then when you do combine them, it'll be easy to delineate and contribute the AE profiles to each agent alone and also combined. Uh, so, you know, I would say uh, it, it, it definitely requires um, a lot of planning and also uh, just being thoughtful about uh, what, you know, what's, what's, what an ideal partnership would look, right? I think always starting from, you know, how do we create a win-win scenario uh, for both sides uh, would be ideal. For us, getting free access to these expensive checkpoint inhibitors as a small biotech company uh, was extremely beneficial. Um, so rather than purchasing Keytruda off the shelf, uh, we get a free supply of Keytruda up to a certain number of patients, right? So that contribution uh, really helps the um, development, uh, you know, from a cost saving standpoint, right? So instead of spending money purchasing Keytruda, we could reinvest that capital into more clinical trials and R&D. Right. And I'm just curious whether those large pharma companies would also help you and support you on those um, combinational therapy clinical trials as well with some logistics, or, or they would just provide the, the drug normally? Yeah, these partnerships, they could come in different forms. Um, you know, of course, there's always a joint development committee that's established that reviews and goes over uh, any development plans on a quarterly basis. And yeah, uh, because they've seen so, so many combinations already, uh, they do bring a, a perspective that uh, we as a, as a biotech company may not have. Uh, so from a, an ex experience level on, on combinations, um, trial design, those are all valuable inputs that we can um, get from the big pharma. Perfect. Arthur, what I'm curious about is what are the upcoming milestones for CG Oncology? What shall we be on the lookout for the next year or two? Sure. Um, what's really coming up right away is we're going to be presenting a, a late-breaking abstract at uh, CITSI, the Society for Immunotherapy of Cancer in Washington, D.C. So over there, we will be presenting two posters. Uh, one is an oral presentation. The other is a poster. Uh, the oral presentation is for a combination of CG0070 with Keytruda. Uh, we'll be announcing um, uh, the abstract content uh, in the coming weeks. And we're also going to show our phase three trial, monotherapy uh, trial in progress uh, poster. Uh, and then from there, um, you know, we hope to um, most likely be at GU ASCO and ASCO next year uh, to pre present a fuller set of the combination trial results, which we're really excited about. We are doing this show for you and your feedback is very important for us. So if you have any suggestions or comments, would like us to cover a specific topic or recommend a guest, please write us an email to team at pmedcast.com. Or you can reach out to us on LinkedIn, Twitter or Facebook. Just type in Personalized Medicine Podcast and you will find us there. 
to download the show notes for this episode, visit our website, pmedcast.com. It's P-M-E-D-C-A-S-T dot com. The show notes include guest bios, links to their most notable work, and recommendations for additional reads on the topic of the episode. Make sure to check them out. And don't miss the next episode. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Give us a rating and leave a comment. It will help us make this show better. And now, let's get back to the interview. Arthur, besides your involvement in CG Oncology, you are also the founding member of Ally Bridge Group. Can you tell us a bit more about your experience with Ally Bridge? How did it come about? And what were your main learnings from this experience? Sure. So again, the the I would say that um, at Ally Bridge, when I first joined as a founding member, or, you know, the first employee, uh, we were a startup. Um, so, you know, I, I you know sometimes I, I think of these big funds um, that we, that we're speaking with. They all have humble beginnings, or they have started somewhere, right? And so with Ally Bridge, you know, we just started with about. Uh, less than twenty million dollars in a first fund, and I witnessed the growth of a startup fund, uh, you know, growing to more than two billion dollars in um, uh, assets under management. So that was a really interesting experience for me to see how uh, a fund uh, is organized and constructed, uh, because the fund also has a business and operation that need they need to run. There's a budget. Uh, they need to assemble a team. They need to have a vision and strategy. And also they have to pitch to their LPs and limited partners and investors to raise capital. Um, so I think that experience has certainly helped me a lot uh, now as a biotech CEO, uh, understanding uh, our investors uh, even more and even better um, because they have their uh, own investment objectives. They have their own investment process. Uh, I think having a better understanding of that uh, has certainly helped me you know, in the fundraising process. Uh, but yeah, at Ally Bridge, it really um, opened up my network into um, just getting access to so many uh, amazing founders and CEOs and um, their own networks as well. Because each company that we backed, they all have their own board of advice, you know, board of directors and SAB members. Um, just getting exposure to so many opportunities, and it really accelerated my my network and. Um, you know, learning curve uh, significantly. Perfect. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. And I think it's such a great experience. And what you said, the growth of Ally Bridge was amazing. Uh, almost two orders of magnitude from, from the initial fund to where you guys are at today. And just following up on, on your last point in the terms of network and maybe mindset. So I'm curious, what are the main differences, maybe similarities in the mindset of an investor and of a biotech founder slash CEO? Yep, for sure. So, well, first of all, one primary difference, which is an obvious one, but I think it's important to point out, is that an investor is going to have a portfolio of companies. So their, uh, their time commitment is never going to be the same as you as a founder or CEO of a biotech company. They may be involved with 10 to 20, if not more companies of, of varying degrees. Um, so I think it's always important to understand 
that you know the investors will always know less than you know as a founder and CEO, um, and you will always uh, really be uh, more of an expert in in your area than the investor, right? Uh, but I think on the flip side, because the investor is involved with multiple companies, they may also see things that you don't see that could be helpful to you, right? Maybe there's learnings uh, from another portfolio company of theirs that were just in a phase two clinical trial um, that were going through you know, certain issues during the trial or after the trial with data analysis. Some of those experiences um, really, you know, on a, from an uh, investor side of things, they would be willing to share with you so that we don't make the same mistakes, right? So I think um, just number one time commitment um, and then level of focus on, on, on your specific uh, area. And I would say sometimes the, uh, I guess the horizon, the investment outlook between investor and founder could be very different. An investor would uh, typically underwrite to uh, an investment to receive a certain return within a certain time frame. So keeping that in mind is also important because you know, at some point, the company will have to generate a liquidity event for their investors. And at that point, there could be differences or ideally alignment uh, at that point. So it's always important to uh, make sure that the investment horizon and vision uh, lines up nicely between an investor and a founder. Perfect. I think it's super helpful for all the young biotech founders in our audience who are listening to this just to understand how differently uh, investors think uh, about the ventures in this space um, or any other space for that matter. And that brings me to, to my next question. So I really want to ask you, which one advice would you give to those young founders who are passionate about starting their own venture in the biotech space? Yes. Well, first of all, it's, it's going to be very challenging and it's probably going to be the hardest thing that you've ever done before. I think, um, you know, especially fundraising, uh, fundraising is the, you know, really the chief, um, responsibility for, for a founder and CEO and setting the right vision and strategy, as well as assembling a great team. Uh, there's been just a, a, a extremely competitive, uh, time right now where, you know, all the big pharmas and small biotechs are all grabbing and securing the best talents out there. So assembling a, a really strong team is extremely critical and making sure you're incentivizing the team uh, in the proper way uh, is, is also critical to think about near term. And as a company evolves from a startup stage to a more mature later stage company, um, you also have to think about uh, what is your vision? Uh, are you, you know, willing to take this all the way through commercialization or perhaps transition off at a certain point where you know, it no longer uh, matches your vision and passion, right? Uh, these are, there are a lot of um, questions like that, that one really should think about. Um, I would also advise, um, you know, just personally, I think running a business is still very different from uh, being a good scientist. And I think, mo you know, most of you may, may be great scientists that have a great idea. Um, I think there will be a different uh, learning curve that you have to go through when you run your own business. And it's important to uh, appreciate the nuances and 
you know, the art of business as well. And if you can, honestly, I, I, I think, you know, if you're, if you're a great scientist, you definitely, you have the potential to become a good business person as well. Uh, but it's important to know your strengths and weaknesses and limitations, because maybe you realize that you may not want to be a good CEO, right? Maybe a CSO or CTO role may be a better fit for you. So, you know, again, a lot of these are uh, questions that uh, are more uh, inwards and introspective that I think are really important to uh, address early on. Um, and maybe if I would just offer one other advice also is, you know, sometimes joining other people's startup and um, kind of not being in the uh, the front seat uh, or front line uh, is also another path that you can consider um, because you also get to learn a lot, but you don't have all that pressure that you have to shoulder on early on, uh, maybe coming out of grad school or postdoc. Love it. Yeah, it's super helpful. And uh, I hope that all of our listeners were listening very carefully to what you just said. I think there is a lot of wisdom in those words. Um, thank you, Arthur, for sharing that uh, from, from your rich experience. Now, what we like to do on our podcast is talk a little bit about the future. And what I would like to ask you is, what are the three developments that you see happening or would like to see happen in the field of personalized medicine, precision oncology over the next 10 years? Absolutely. So first of all, I think um, having a great biomarker strategy is, um, is still one of the most important things going forward. Um, really selecting patients and enriching patients that will or would not uh, respond to a therapy is, is highly critical. And, you know, along the same veins, we'd love, love to see additional development in the liquid biopsy space um, for um, just to gather data throughout the continuum of treatment, not just at a certain time point, uh, so that we can better understand how different therapies are uh, affecting uh, the tumor cells and the patient's overall health outcome. Uh, so I think, you know, biomarker is something that um, is going to be very critical. And I think leveraging new technologies that are de being developed on the horizon um, is, is highly uh, critical. Second, I would say better designs and, um, you know, focusing on running smarter trials is also really critical. And you know, what I mean by that is we are now gathering so many evidence in, in real time, in the real world, once a therapy has been approved, right? How does that translate into the current treatment paradigm, the standard of care? I think that really requires a lot of effort um, because even if a therapy is approved by the FDA, it doesn't necessarily mean it will be incorporated into the standard of care. So I think thinking through trial designs that uh, really would, would ultimately be integrated into the treatment paradigm uh, is extremely critical. And then uh, along the same veins, if we can leverage biomarkers to redefine uh, diseases and tumor types, right? maybe run tissue agnostic studies, uh, those are all really important developments that I would like to see over the next five to 10 years. And you know, lastly, I think also along the same veins, there are so many modalities out there right now. Chemotherapy, radiation therapy, IO, targeted therapy, you know, cell therapy, and of course, antibodies, including bispecifics, 
uh, and so on. I, I think we tend to get into this us versus them mentality when you know when we're in a biotech or pharma. I think it's important to still stay focused on the fundamental problem that we're all trying to solve collectively, which is to combat cancer right, and improve patient outcomes. So I think it's important to think more about uh, combination use cases and really reach into this rich toolbox that we're collectively building and developing. Right? Think about rational combinations um, from this toolbox, right? And don't just focus on one single modality. And again, on, on that note, um, I would love to see, um, you know, assuming we find really good combination therapies um, on the biologic side or, you know, with small molecules, I, I still think that um, the cost of therapy and treatment effectiveness uh, would have to come in the equation. So I think um, one focus there, of course, if you can increase the effectiveness, um, then, then the higher cost could be justified. So again, that all comes down to being thoughtful and integrating real-world evidence into um, how you compare and, and, and combine therapies uh, would be highly critical over the next few years. Amazing. Yeah, that sounds very, very important and very promising at the same time. Yeah, there is a lot of things that our industry has to do collectively. And uh, that's probably also on the shoulders of all of the players in the space, including pharma companies. And I really like the way you framed it, that we don't really need to get into the war with each other, like which modality works better. And it's all about those patient outcomes and what can be translated to the clinics in the end um, and make it also not just available, but affordable. Exactly. Exactly. Perfect. Ortho, thank you so much for amazing interview. I think we've collected lots of great insights from you. But before I let you go, one last question. Where can our audience find you online in case they would like to follow up with you? Absolutely. So I, I just started a Twitter account not long ago. So you can find me at uh, at Quan Arthur on Twitter. And I'm also on LinkedIn as well. Um, and it's just Arthur Quan. So yeah, please, I encourage every, everyone to reach out and uh, send me a quick note um, in the uh, invite. Great. Thank you, Arthur. This was amazing. Thanks a lot for joining us today and we'll stay in touch. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Personalized Medicine Podcast. If you like this show and know someone who would enjoy it too, please share this podcast with them. And don't miss the next episode yourself. Subscribe to the Personalized Medicine Podcast on your favorite podcasting app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many, many more. Please rate us there and leave a comment. That helps us to grow and deliver the best experience to you. To access the show notes for this episode, visit our website, pmedcast.com. It's p-m-e-d-c-a-s-t.com. And engage with us on social media, where we regularly share the news and exciting content on personalized medicine. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook just by typing in Personalized Medicine Podcast. Or use our handle, pmatcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to suggest a guest for the show, write us an email to team at pmatcast.com. Have a great day and until next time.